Welcome to the Bible Feed Podcast, a place for conversations about the Bible and faith in the modern world, where ordinary people come together to help each other understand the Bible better. Let's get started. So welcome to the next episode of the Bible Feed Podcast. And my name is Dan Weatherall, and I'm here with Tom Gaston today. Hi, Tom. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you. It's really good to talk to you today. Uh, I'm quite excited about today, today's episode, because it's a little bit different, um, because uh, you've recently published a book, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit. Um, in actual fact, you've, you've published a few books in your time, <laughs> you? <laughs> yes. which uh, which is good. They're, they're always worth going through the back catalogue, but we're going to be talking about um, your recent book, um, which is uh, which is an, an interesting one. It's, re- it's really good. Um, so do you want to just uh, tell us a little bit about that? Sure, we'll do. So the book is called Founding a Faith, um, and it's really an exploration, exploration of what is faith and how does it work? How might you go about getting it if you don't already have faith? And how might you go about fixing it if you're struggling with faith? And those are really sort of two of the key audiences for the book, are those people either who don't already have faith but might be interested, or those people who do have faith, but uh, something's not quite going right for them. Uh, maybe they're struggling with doubts and uncertainty. So it's trying to help those people think about uh, their faith and maybe find a better way of, of thinking about faith that will help them get through whatever they're struggling with. Yeah, it's, it's good. It, it is a good read. Um, it's, it's a topic which um, you might think has been done to the death. <laughs> Um, I suppose, you know, the relevance of faith in the modern world and, you know, is it is it outmoded? You know, can we have faith today? And, you know, all those sorts of questions, they're, they're sort of perennial, aren't they? And I think the last 10, 20 years or so have been really hammered. But actually, there's something in it that it's something in your book, which is really, really good. I mean, hopefully what, what I'm hoping we'll have a conversation, we'll be able to talk through a few um, of those, you know, a couple of those key aspects of that, um, which uh, which can come out, things which will help. So it's about faith. So you've, you've started that off already. You've said that. Let's define that. What, what do you um, what do you mean when you say faith? Yeah, I think, and that's really key. So one of the most common difficulties and misunderstandings people have with faith is they don't really necessarily understand what it is. So when we talk about, for example, believing something by faith. To some people, that sounds very circular. If you think that faith and belief are the same thing, then believing by faith just means believing by belief or just choosing to believe whatever you like. And that's clearly not what we mean by faith. So the way I talk about faith in the book um, is about trust, and I distinguish that from from beliefs. So faith as a relational thing, uh, whereas beliefs is more about, I guess, head knowledge about the things that you actually sort of affirm or believe are true. Mm. Um, so that's the sort of key distinction I make in the book. Faith on its own, that word, the English word, is used in so many different ways, isn't it? I mean, often people, when someone says about faith, people hear blind faith, don't they? That, you know, faith uh, without any kind of evidence or anything, you know, believing something when there's no evidence or anything like that. And, you know, you do talk a bit about, or quite a bit about, um, you know, what's rational to believe certain things. But actually, yeah, this trust element, which comes through in your book very, very much, and especially at the end when you sort of sum- summarise everything and say, um, yeah, all these sort of reasons to believe are, are one thing, but actually, do you know what? They're not really trust. <laughs> that that really, really struck me, actually. Um, I, I suppose when you're sort of trying to scientifically provide evidence for something so that you can then believe that it's true, you're never going to get, a, you know, you're never going to get a trust element to it. Yeah, exactly. So, so 
trust is really is a relational thing. It's about uh, you know trust exists between people, whereas you know beliefs exist between facts and and somebody who believes them. So if you think about maybe the easiest example is the relationship somebody has with their wife. You know, when I say I have faith in my wife, I don't mean that I believe she exists, although obviously I I do believe she yeah. exists. But that faith is about you know the relationship that we have between the two of us and the trust that exists. So when we as Christians talk about faith in God, primarily we're not really talking about knowing that God exists. Though obviously that's a part of it, but it's more about the relationship that we have with God. Um, yeah. And 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 so and and that really is what we mean by talking about faith. And when we re- ultimately when we talk about founding a faith, we're talking about how do we start having that relationship with god yeah it's, it's really perceptive that and, and this is where i think this your, your book fills a sort of gap as it were because there's so many um so much material and resources on but perhaps both sides um either a christian or an atheist position that to try and sort of say look you can believe it's rational to believe all this sort of thing or you can't believe it's irrational to believe and it actually what you're saying is there's there's something else that's really important which is you know this relational thing which which i'm sure it will help a lot of people um so so that's it in an in a nutshell what i'm what I'm going to do is I'm just going to sort of comment on a couple of things that I found interesting in, in your book. Um, and that way, hopefully, some of it will sort of come through and, uh, and hopefully be of interest. So first thing uh, I'm really struck, is, uh, struck with is one of the, the metaphors that you use. So you talk about building faith. You know, it, should, it, should it be that we build faith like a tower, um, which I think you, you assert that most people do, um, or, or often it's e- easy to do so? Or actually, is faith developed like a web, a web of related ideas? So just explain that. Hopefully, I've sort of understood that. So I think quite often, um, whether sort of consciously or not, we think about our religious beliefs and maybe our beliefs in general as as a tower that rests upon a, a strong foundation. Then you build each belief up one upon upon the other. And that kind of makes sense. And it feels secure. It feels strong. If you've got that mm-hmm. strong foundation, everything is built on that strong foundation. So it's understandable that people think about their beliefs in that way. And that, but that tendency leads you towards thinking about, well, what's that you know, what's that certain belief that I can have as a foundation at the bottom? What's that rock solid thing that I can always trust for the rest of my beliefs? Um, the danger with doing it that way is, of course, as soon as you start getting challenges towards that key foundation thing, mm-hmm. then the rest of the tower begins to look uncertain, begins to shake. So actually, whilst the tower feels like it's strong and certain, Actually, it's quite fragile and likely to topple. It's like playing Jenga, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly <laughs> so, right. Yeah, and actually, it's not just the bottom that's that's an issue, is it? You, you know, you pull pull something out at any point in that tower, and there's going to be something above it that is going to suffer. And the lower down that tower you go, if, you know, if you're building your your beliefs, your belief system on things that turn out to not not be sort of verifiable later down in your life, then yeah, it's going to cause cause a, a a fall, isn't it? And, and actually, quite a lot of people probably go through that process where, yeah. you know, in early life, they build up a set of beliefs like a tower. They learn a bit more as they grow up and some of those beliefs yeah. you know, come under challenge. And some people never come back to that process of rebuilding. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're left, with, left with the rubble. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're sort of saying that actually that's not necessarily a logical way of approaching it because as we navigate life, we don't sort of, you know, believe general things uh, like a tower. We do it more like a web. So 
What yeah, exactly. So, so the, the different model is the is the idea of this web, and the idea behind a web is that there is no foundation, there is no sort of one thing that you rest everything else on. Instead, all your beliefs are interconnected, and the reason why you hold them, why you hold your beliefs, is due to the way they connect with everything else that you believe. And you would accept new beliefs if they fit well within your web, and you might reject beliefs if they don't fit well within your web. Now, the, the advantage of that as a model is that actually it's a lot more flexible. So if one of your beliefs comes under challenge, what do you do? Well, actually, you re-examine it. If it no longer seems to fit within your web, well, maybe you reject it. But the web itself doesn't collapse at that point. You just readjust your web to fit. Mm. And within that web, the big things, you know, your core beliefs are going to be held into place by many different connections throughout your web and therefore are big and secure, whereas yeah. all those little bits, all those little beliefs are probably not very well connected with other things and therefore can be easily changed, removed, modified. So when you go through that same process of encountering maybe challenges to your beliefs or reevaluating some of these sort of outside beliefs, well, you can do that without feeling like you know your core beliefs are being challenged mm. or being shaken. And so actually, that web is much more strong and more secure than the, than the tower is. Yeah, one one challenge, one segment comes away and you realise that's not necessarily true, but the rest is kind of there and sort of shapes itself around that whole. So mm. yeah, I can see the value of that. I can sort of see how, how that kind of works generally. Anyway, you know, you might have trust in an organization or faith in an organization, um, I don't know, the police or something like that. And then it turns out that one policeman is you know, is corrupt and whatever. And you don't, you, you don't therefore conclude that all policemen are, are corrupt. You actually adjust your belief and to think that, oh, actually, okay, there's, you know, there's, there's a problem with that individual there. And, you know, there might be some problems, but you, you, you adjust your, your belief. I suppose it would be irrational to therefore conclude that the, you know, the tower of trust that you had in that organization should then therefore crumble in its entirety. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. I think it's really helpful to to think through your belief structure like that. Um, it did it did make me think. I'm, I'm going to sort of not push back, but just see what you think about this, because as a as a Christian um, uh, who reading the Bible and and sort of understanding what the Bible says, it it does it talks about foundations, doesn't it? It talks about Jesus Christ as a foundation um, on which sort of people build, um, and it just made me think about that um you know there's there's metaphors of buildings and so on but but yeah jesus as the foundation is that a separate metaphor or? yeah no, that's really good points so there are there are numerous occasions in the bible which talk about you know jesus the cornerstone yeah um jesus talks about building upon yeah build your house upon a rock not upon the sand yeah so there are you know these metaphors that recur in the bible but I would say that each of those probably is better understood as something other than your belief structure. So when he talks about Jesus as the cornerstone, he's talking about Jesus as the cornerstone of the household of faith. So, okay, yeah. you know, as Christians, Paul, for example, in his letters talks about this idea that we are the temple of God and, and we're being fitted together as stones into that temple of God of whom Jesus is the cornerstone. So he's not really talking about our sort of religious epistemology. He's not talking about our belief structures. He's talking about yeah. 
you know the body of believers. Similarly, when when uh, he's talking about this idea of you know building your house upon uh, mm. upon the rock, again in the context of that passage, he's not talking about why you should believe certain things and not others, and then building up that sort of you know that that structure of beliefs upon that. Jesus is talking about how you live your life as a Christian. Mm. Um, so it's not about this sort of intellectual you know uh, sort of interrelationality of beliefs. It's much more about the sort of living practicalities of being a Christian. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, Jesus, that that um, you know, the wise man builds his house upon the rock that you just alluded to there. That's in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? At the end of yeah. that, you know, full of practical teaching about how you should live your life and you should treat people in this way, that sort of thing. So, and also, uh, if there is a concept of the foundation and it's Jesus as the foundation, immediately that's he's a he's a person again. So yeah. there's a relation. There's actually an, a relational element there already, mm-hmm. um, which you're you sort of trying to trying to get to. You know, having this faith and trust in in Jesus and yeah. and in, in God. So we won't sort of go backwards and forwards. But there's things like um, you know, Acts 17 talks about g- giving offered assurance of the things that God has promised by raising this man from the dead. You know, it's sort of kind of suggesting that the reason for faith is the resurrection of Jesus and comes up in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, doesn't it? About um, if Jesus is not raised, your faith is in vain. So again, I would sort of naturally think Jesus is the foundation and his resurrection is kind of the, the bedrock of these things. I mean, you talk about the resurrection actually, don't you, in the book? About- yeah, absolutely. So I, clearly the resurrection is really important for Christians. Yeah. And so that idea of the resurrection as the assurance of the thing, you know, of Jesus, who he is, the claims he made, and therefore the truths of Christianity is absolutely important for the way Christians understand their beliefs. And so, you know, without that, without belief in the resurrection, you probably couldn't have a Christian mm. um, Christian faith. It seems, seems so integral. Um, but it doesn't work um, as a foundation per se, because that belief in the resurrection is in of itself interconnected with a whole other range of beliefs. Arguably, the most important one, of course, being the existence of God. True. Yeah. It probably doesn't make sense to talk about resurrections unless there is a God to make resurrections possible, right? So an atheist yeah can quite rightly claim, well, I don't believe in God, therefore I don't believe resurrections are possible. And therefore that that idea doesn't make any sense to me. And so yeah. and I don't think there's much point having that conversation with an atheist about the resurrection of Jesus per se, at least till you get them over the line towards at least accepting the possibility that there might yeah. be a God. Yeah, so, you know, all these things are interconnected. That's right. Yeah. One thing leads to another and everything on it needs to be considered in you know its entirety. Yeah, you, you do a good job, a good good job of doing that. You know, picking out these these key topics. Okay, so there's there's one there's another thing that you tackle really quite early on, um, which is to do with the fact that God appears to be hidden. I suppose the fact we're having this conversation, the fact that you wrote the book, the fact that so many people wonder that God isn't. It's obvious that God isn't obvious. <laughs> that's that's what you're saying. Um, you know, it's a valid thing to say a common kind of objection to you know what if god it does exist then why hasn't he made it obvious to to everybody in the world um so just do you want to lead us through sort of your take on that so it's one of those things that we really as christians should be open and honest about that clearly the existence of god is less obvious than it could be 
you know, the existence of God is not obvious in the same way, for example, the existence of the sun is obvious to us. You know, people don't quibble over the existence of the sun, for yeah. example. And and clearly there are lots of different ways in which God could have made his existence more obvious than it is. So, you know, to pluck an example out of the air, I mean, God could have written a message in the sky to say, yeah. you know, yes, I exist and you should believe in me and, you know, become a Christian. Yeah. That hasn't happened. Um, even though God can do anything and so presumably could have done it if he'd wanted to. So there must be a reason, therefore, if God exists, why he hasn't chosen to do those things, why he's chosen to sort of remain sort of partially hidden. And the explanation I give in the book is to do with morally significant choices. And what I mean by morally significant choice is a choice basically that can either be good or bad. So if you think about, uh, I don't know, feeding a starving person, um, if I choose to feed that starving person, that choice is praiseworthy. It's it, it's good. It has a moral significance to it. And whereas if I, for example, chose not to, well, that might be bad and it might be blameworthy again. So it's a morally significant choice because it could either be good or, or be bad. And the world is a much better place for having morally significant choices because it allows for good things like compassion and generosity and sort of all the sort of beautiful, praiseworthy things that people do. But to allow for actual morally significant choices depends upon my freedom. I, unless I am free, I can't make those choices. So take, for example, again, look at thinking about this, this starving man. If I feed that starving person, that seems praiseworthy. That seems good. People would say that I've done a good thing. But imagine that somebody had paid me to do it. Well, suddenly it doesn't seem very good at all. In fact, it might seem rather cynical. Similarly, if I if I steal some food, well, that might seem greedy. That might seem bad. But if I was fe- stealing that food to to feed my starving family, well, that maybe seems less bad, right? You might be mitigating circumstances. So the level to which I am co- compelled or coerced reduces my freedom and therefore reduces the moral significance of my choices. So then when we bring that back to the question of God, well, if God's existence was obvious, then that level of compulsion or that level of coercion suddenly becomes sort of dialed up to to an infinite amount, right? If the infinite God, who is uh, perfectly good, uh, who knows my future, who who knows all my my thoughts, my actions, and you know, might ultimately have reward or punishment in mind for you know my mm. actions. If his existence is beyond my my doubt, then then my freedom to make choices is effectively eliminated. I, I, I'm no longer generous for my own sake. I'm generous for the sake of reward or for fear of punishment. God is, I, you know, my actions are no longer free um, to a greater or lesser extent. They are compelled and coerced by the ever-present sort of overseer in the sky who's, you know, who's almost forcing me to act in certain ways. So if God wants there to be morally significant choices, and I think there's a good reason to think that's something that God would want because you know the world is a much better place for, for for those, then it seems reasonable to think that God should want to keep his existence less than obvious, partially hidden, to allow for that freedom to operate so that then people can go ahead and either act in generous, compassionate, loving ways or in mean, greedy, petty, you know, petty ways. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we, we celebrate, don't we, as human beings, we celebrate acts of compassion, generosity. We applaud it and we think it's wonderful. So we place a huge amount of value on that, don't we? So your argument effectively is that, that yes, that they are good things. And for, for God to have that 
he has to be obscured or or behind um you know the, the way of the world that's turning day by day month by month year by year and seems seems to be sort of going on and on but actually yeah there's room for for doubt so that we're acting out of out of love effectively rather than either compelled because we begrudgingly or um just sort of acting as a, as a robot really that's that's the other alternative isn't it yeah exactly. um, you, you think about that i think throughout a lot of the book so the fact that um you know the reason why god might be hidden and the fact that there is there you know philosophically effectively there is a good reason why god might be like that and just sort of to tie it into to the bible um the bible talks at length doesn't it all the way through about choosing life or choosing death or you know making these decisions with your life Sermon on the Mount is about making sure you make the morally significant choice of loving your neighbour as yourself and things like that, isn't it? It's undeniable that Christianity is about making good choices. When it comes to sort of considering what the Bible actually is, um, you, you sort of talk about that in relation to, to God's hiddenness there as well, don't you? Because you, you sort of think, you know, what, what do we make of this? The fact that we've got this Bible, should we expect God to have made a, a message? So, okay, we're ruling out the fact that he's putting a message in the sky, effectively, but is what do we make of the Bible? How does the argument feed into that? Once we take as a given the idea that God has these reasons for wanting his existence to be less than obvious, then obviously that acts as a context for everything else that we might believe. It, you know, it's, it's part of your web of belief, so to speak. Yeah. That you know, there's already this idea that God would want to be less than hidden, and clearly that then has impacts for the way in which God might choose to reveal Himself. So if God um, has reasons to be less than obvious, if God has reasons to be sort of partially hidden, then there are certain things that he might not choose to do to maintain that level of um, hiddenness. So, you know, not write out, you know, the message in the sky, not send personal angels to everybody to sort of give them instruction. In which case, you expect God instead to work through intermediaries primarily instead to deliver his message rather than it delivering it directly. Yeah. And And I suppose you you would, you do expect a God who wants humans to make morally significant good choices. You would expect him to want to talk to them, wouldn't you? But yes. But feel kind of almost, um, you know, restrained by the fact that he wants them to to get there themselves. Effectively, that's so. Yeah, it's not unreasonable to to think that he's want to use an intermediary. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, if God, if you, if those two things are true, that God wants to remain hidden, but he also wants to sort of convey certain you know, information yeah. to us to lead us along, lead us along, then, you know, it makes sense that he would use intermediaries and, and, and I guess effectively what we would, you know, the Bible word for that would be a prophet, right? Or in the New Testament, yeah. an apostle. So those are the sort of intermediaries we talk about in, in biblical language. Um, now, those intermediaries, those prophets, they're only going to live a certain amount of time. They're only going to be a cover them at a certain amount of ground, you know, in, you know, with the best will in the world, they're only going to get so far. So in the ancient world, if you want to convey that message for uh, to wider distance, and preserve it for future generations, then you really are talking about writing it down in some kind of a book. So the idea of um, a book like the Bible, that you know, we should get a set of um, messages delivered through prophets and apostles that is then written down for future generations, is not unexpected. It's not surprising. It's the kind of thing that we would expect God to do if he's wishing, willing to, if he's wanting to, on the one hand, convey this information to us, but on the other hand, also keep his existence partially hidden. 
Yeah. And then, of course, that relates to then the sort of text you would expect. So if God worked through a prophet in, you know, Bronze Age, um, ancient Israel, um, you would expect that prophet yeah. to be writing in the language of that time, using the idioms of that time, um, and you would expect that text to, to be, you know, preserved through a, a long process of, you know, copying it out and those copies being copied uh, over years and maintained in that way. So, you know, the whole sort of sequence of events that we have in, you know, in the way the Bible came together again is not unexpected, yeah. given that pre, uh, given that assumption that this yeah. is the way God has chosen to act. It's really, it's it's funny, really, because you expect the Bible to be like that. Um, I think so many people don't expect that. They expect the opposite, don't they? Expect mm. it to be, you know, golden tablets from heaven, that kind of model. Yeah. Um, but actually, uh, yeah, flip it on its head, stay, take a step back and think if God has good reasons to be one step removed almost, I don't know if that's the right way of, of, sort yeah. of saying it, but but yeah, wants you to, to choose life because it's a, you know, a, a good thing that you're choosing to do and choose love and choose to, to live like that. Um, it, it's, it's actually obvious when you put it like that, that yeah, this is going to be, this, this will be the way that you would do it um, through these, these prophets speaking a, a word, speaking a, a message um, to, to various different people um, people groups and uh, you know or a particular people group and how that they could therefore then spread that um, message to to others as effectively as they they could and ultimately that you know comes to the apostles doesn't it following the words of Jesus and and using the Roman Roman roads to good effect yeah exactly <laughs> yeah I, I find that a, help, a helpful thing to to think through it's well worth um well worth sort of looking at that section in in your book and and, and pondering that through and i think it's i think it's really helpful um helpful to both those those groups that you say the book sort of targeted at those effectively maybe struggling with their faith maybe needed to help it putting it back together but also those then you know searching for a faith they might be looking for something that's more uh, specific or secure or more like the golden tablets from heaven but actually it makes sense that the bible is what it is so okay so w one more thing about about the book um and uh it's i i thought it's it's really quite light on on concrete answers which uh, i don't mean that in a in a bad way <laughs> it's like it's like you're uh, What's the what's the word? You're sitting on the fence a lot. <laughs> You've not written a preachy kind of book. You've not written a textbook. You're raising lots and lots of different topics. Um, you've raised some topics that are quite difficult for, uh, well, both atheists and Christians, possibly particularly more so Christians, to to talk through and, and think through. And actually, you 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 don't spoon feed any answers to them at all. It is what you're doing trying to develop the tools, give people tools to develop this web of faith rather than actually try and teach people the answers. You're right. So um, the book that I've uh, written specifically doesn't give people those answers um, in a way that we might expect. So clearly we belong to a community that has certain views about certain things, and it would be simple to just say, this is what we believe, this, and this is why. And there are clearly other books that would do that. But that's you've, not, you've written some as well. I've written yeah. some, some yeah. books on that nature. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, there are you other books available. Need to do something different, didn't you? <laughs> Absolutely. So, but it's it's it was intentional to do a couple of things. So, firstly, it's about as you say the, the sort of tools about how you're putting this web together, mm -hmm. and the order in which you put that web together is important. So, when you're sort of thinking about you know your religious beliefs, your beliefs that a Christian might hold, 
you're going to start with the big things first, right? So you're going to start with that big question about whether God exists or not. Yeah. You're not going to start way down the line with all the sort of little things that, you know, Christians disagree amongst themselves about or that, you know, sometimes atheists and Christians disagree about. You're going to start with that big question first. So that order is really important. So to get away from, you know, any sort of, you know, clouding of the issues or putting all those stumbling blocks in there first, we need to clear that ground out of the way and just say, let's consider that big question first on its own merits. Mm -hmm. And then you come back to those other things. And that, again, ex explains about, um, you know, the way these webs work. We we're talking about earlier, this, this idea of, of webs with all the sort of little beliefs around the edges and they're flexible and they're open to change. Um, and, and so to put those things in their right context, right? Not because those beliefs aren't important. Clearly they're important. It's important that we, you know, nobody wants to believe wrong things, right? So it is important that we get, you know, we come to form a view on those things and we will always try and form the correct view of, of things. That's what we want to do as human beings. But we need to do the sort of, you know, get them in the right order when, when we come to do that yeah. in developing our, developing our web. And yeah, just to stress that those things are secondary, you know, these things that quite often act as stumbling blocks to yeah. people, you know, understandably and for good reasons, it's yeah. understandable that, that, you know, for certain people, certain things are going to be a stumbling block, going to get in their way. But we need to clear those out of the way and say, well, let's, you know, let's talk about the big things yeah. first, and then we can come back to those those little things later. Yeah, things you're talking about, like I don't know the nature of the Godhead, is it Trinity or not? The, the way Bible, the Bible sits into history, the nature of the soul, things like that. I mean, I I have a view on on those things, some a firm view on on some of those things, and I'm guessing you do too as well. Um, but but just jumping into those sorts of topics, establishing a firm view without getting the the basics behind it firmly, as sort of established in your web of beliefs, means that if there's ever any kind of attack or challenge or anything to any sort of aspect of what we believe, you're risking the whole web collapsing or the, the tower collapsing because it wouldn't, you know, it, it wouldn't be um, a web, would it? That's I really appreciate what your your book's trying to do, um, and it must have taken some restraint, I, I guess, almost to, to not sort of say, "Oh, and by the way, the answer to this is this, and <laughs> this is what I think about this." And because actually, it's about uh, what is it teaching? Uh, not giving a man to fish, but teaching a man to fish, and then he'll be able to feed himself and his family. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Uh, so, uh, I, in sort of summary, what's at the what's the core in the faith web of a Christian? So the way I presented it in the book is that you know you would start with your, um, your your belief in God and and if you're convinced that that God exists or it's more probable than not I mean that's kind of what we mean when we talk about believing sure. something we mean yeah. it's more probable than not well if you mean if you believe it's more probable than not that God exists well then that has implications for something else and that something else might be christianity and so therefore you're going to want to sort of form beliefs about jesus and particularly because we talked about earlier about his yeah. resurrection and if you think on the basis of the historical evidence that actually the resurrection of jesus is more probable than not then that's going to have implications then in turn for the sort of things that you might want to believe and then do about that right so you know if you um, believe that jesus is fundamentally who he says he was then his teachings is going to have fundamental significance for you and so within that you know you're going to start building up within your web things like you know the core teachings of jesus like love for god love for your neighbor um you know and, and 
about the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and um, about the resurrection of the dead, and so and so on. So those sort of key that key um, Christianity, those key beliefs, that core Christian beliefs, start building up themselves, and then eventually you would then begin to get onto things like the Bible and what the, you know what the specific things the Bible teaches, um, and then ultimately way down the line onto those controversial issues that christians love to sure. you know argue yeah. about and spend more so, time know. on those things <laughs> yes like i said it, i think it fills a, a gap even when you thought that there wasn't a gap to be filled um in this sort of topic i think um, you've carved out a niche and it's well worth well worth reading i, I think probably uh, anyone reading it will will be raising their eyebrows at one point or another because because you, you you're not sort of answering all the questions and you're saying lots of different you know, people think X, Y, and Z about this, and, and you're navigating the process of forming. That how do people form these beliefs? And I think just going through that is extremely helpful to sort of help make your own web strong. Um, you know, irrespective of the the conclusions that you might think about these different topics that you raise. So, I found it helpful. So, thank you, Tom. Yeah, and thanks a lot for for coming on. Um, really, really appreciated the conversation. And I would advise people to if you know if they thought that was interesting if they thought that was helpful to them then go ahead and, and get a copy of the book um so where can where can you get it from so it's available um on amazon and other online retailers it's currently available in paperback and uh the ebook book version will be coming out soon okay brilliant so looking forward to an ebook version as well excellent so thank you very much again and we'll um i hope we have a, another conversation some point in the future um that's something else we've got plenty of other books to, to talk about <laughs> <laughs> thank you everyone else for, for listening and as always let us know what you think at biblefeed.org and uh, look forward to being with you next time You've been listening to the Bible Feed podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're always keen to hear what you think, hear your questions or subjects you'd like us to discuss. Get in touch with us on our Facebook page or send a message from our webpage at biblefeed.org and be part of the journey.